Well, good morning, everyone. I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. And, uh, and while you're doing that, I want to give you a free and unsolicited public service announcement. Uh, so we are just a couple weeks away from finishing up our time in Galatians. It's been a wonderful series for me anyway. I hope it's been encouraging to you. And uh, it, it's coming to a close. So, so I'll preach today from the first few verses of chapter 6. Seth will preach next week uh, the, last, uh, the, the next chunk of verses. And then Shaka Mitchell is going to be preaching the week after that to wrap our series. While I'm on the subject of other elders preaching to us, um, you're going to be get, getting opportunity to hear from several of these brothers over the, the next uh, several weeks. Um, I'm going to be focusing on other work, in, in part preparing the series that's to come in the new year, and also sitting with you under the teaching of these faithful men that God has given us. So you've got that to look forward to over the next couple of weeks, we'll be, or the next few weeks. We'll be finishing Galatians and then spending a couple of weeks in Luke's Gospel which will both help us to, to, to celebrate the coming of Jesus, but also prepare us for next year's series, which is going to be in, drumroll please, anticipation building. I can see it all over your faces. The book of Acts. We're going to spend next year in the book. Of, I love I'm hearing all these whispered yeses out there. It's awesome. Uh, we're going to be spending the next year or so, most of next year, in the book of Acts. It's the 10th year of our church's life. We'll hit our 10-year anniversary in September. So what better way to spend that year than looking at the beginning of the church in general and learning what we can learn from its story. And so uh, the, the book of Luke, which our, our Sunday school class is currently going through, uh, is the companion volume to the book of Acts. So uh, the next couple of weeks after the Galatians series will touch on the beginning of Luke and hopefully help move us seamlessly into studying Acts together next year. So pray for me as I prepare that series, and uh, among other things that I'll be doing in the next few weeks. And then pray for the other brothers who are going to preach to you guys uh, over the next few weeks. I know we're all going to benefit from it. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, but that's what's to come. Let's talk about today. Today we get the chance to consider a few verses together from Galatians chapter 6. Um, and this is going to be wrapping this letter. It's going to mean going deeper into the section of the letter that we've been in the last two or three weeks. It's a section where Paul takes the gospel message he spends most of the letter describing and defending and drives it deeply into the details of the lives that his friends are living. As he does in so many of his letters, he takes the big ideas that he has introduced and defended and applies them. And where he applies the ideas of the gospel most often, and where he applies those ideas in the text we'll look at today, is in the relationships that believers live together with one another. This has been a really polemical letter uh, very personal, sharp in some places, because Paul's been pushing back on dangerous ideas. But it's polemical, not in the sense that you know two seminary professors might go back and forth at one another about some nuanced point that they disagree on that really never will translate into the lives of the people they teach. It's not that kind of polemical. It's it, it, one reason. One reason Paul is so up in arms about what's at stake here and fights with such intensity against it is that he knows the nature of the gospel shows up in the nature of the lives we live with one another. The gospel is life and death, not just because it affects where you stand with the God who made you, but because it affects how you view yourself now, and as we're going to see today, it affects how you view other people and relate to them too. The main focus of what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 6 is what it looks like to give care to one another in community. You can think about these verses as a profile of a Christian friend. 
You can think about these verses as answering a question. Paul doesn't raise it, but I will. What kind of friend does the gospel create? When you know the gospel, when you know the good news that Paul's been writing about in this letter, when you begin to know it not just in your brain but in your bones, when it affects your heart and it affects how you live towards one another, what kind of friend do you become? What are your friendships for? I think that's what he's, that's what he's teaching us in the first five verses of chapter 6. And I want to get at it by focus, focusing in on two commands that Paul gives in these verses that both affect your friendships with other people. I'm a, I want to help us understand those commands first looking uh, one at a time, but within each command, looking at what is the work of friendship that Paul's describing here, and then what are the tools that he's given us for that work. Two commands, both of them describing the work of Christian friendship, both of them followed by tools that Paul highlights that God has given us through the gospel for taking up this work. So I'm going to be I'm going to be I'm be taking these two steps. Um, I'm going to tell you now what they are. It's the work of restoration. That's first. That's in the first verse, and the work of burden sharing. That's in verses two through five. The work of restoration. The work of burden sharing. What I want to do is try to understand what the work is, and then what tools we've been given to do it. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the verses we'll we'll be working through this morning. I'm going to pick up in verse one of chapter six and. Read through verse 5. This is the word of the Lord to us. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first command that Paul gives in this first verse is the command to restore one who is caught in sin. This verse puts in front of us the work of restoration, part of what it means to be a gospel-shaped Christian friend in someone else's life. So I want to take a minute here to talk about what that work is and then to look at the tools Paul points us to that the gospel gives us for doing that work. We got to have the right tools, so we need to make sure we understand what they are. Let's talk about the work first. And I think to, to understand it, we've got to pay attention to a couple of these words that we could misunderstand. So this first line in here really comes at you, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of smacks you in the face. If anyone is caught in any transgression, just right there, when I hear the word caught, I'm thinking a gotcha moment, you know, like, like, like one of those, uh, uh, what, what was that TV show that always was on Sunday nights where they would like hide cameras and then catch people when they show up. I don't remember which one that was. That was da- is that Dateline? I don't know. One of those. You guys know what I'm talking about. That's the image I have when I first hear that word is someone being trapped and caught in sin by people who were out to get them. And that's not what it means. It's a, it's a word that, that much more, uh, more often communicates something like surprise. So when you think caught in sin, think being, being s- ensnared in sin. Think being like tripped up or, or, or stuck in sin. So not being found out in sin, but being caught in it, stuck in it, ensnared by it, or having had it sneak up on you until it controls you in a way that you never anticipated and didn't recognize until it happened. 
That's the, that's the image that Paul has in mind. A, a brother or a sister who's caught in sin. The next word you need to understand, if you're going to understand this word, is this word spiritual. You who are spiritual should restore. That's another one that can easily be misunderstood. I don't know about you. When I first read it, I'm thinking like a special elite class of Christian. As if there's some Christians who are qualified to do the work of restoring people who are caught in sin and others who are not. As if the Christian community is divided into the haves and the have-nots in that way, if you will. And that actually works against a lot of what Paul's been saying in this letter. That is not how he sees the Christian life or the Christian community. It helps to remember what he's just been saying. He's just been talking about the Spirit and the fruit that the Spirit works out in the lives of Christians. So you who are spiritual is just his way of referring to all Christians because every Christian has the Spirit in them. If you're a Christian, you're one of the ones who are spiritual. So he's saying, basically, that this work that we're about to talk about, it's everybody's work. It's a basic feature of Christianity. If you want to be with Jesus, then you are those who are spiritual who are now being called on to take up the work of restoration. And that's the final word to notice here, restore. That's what the Christian does when he sees a friend who's caught or ensnared or surprised by sin. Restore is different from punish, isn't it? It's different from judge. It's different... It's different from demolish. The work of restoration is a different work than demolition. And the Christian friend takes up a work of restoration. In other words, the Christian's friend sees in this person caught in sin something precious, something beautiful, but something that needs loving care, something in need of restoration. That's a different kind of work, isn't it? Basically, the work of restoration he's talking about, I think now hopefully with these words a little more clear, we can zoom out a little bit and talk about what this work is. I think it makes a lot of sense in light of what we talked about last week. At the end of chapter 5 in Galatians, Paul describes this civil war, this tug of war inside every single Christian. There's the, there's the desires of the flesh, they're still there, they're strong. And there's the desires of the spirit given by Christ to fight against the flesh inside of you. So every Christian is in this tug of war. And the flesh will remain in them, fighting for control for as long as they live. And if that's the case, you'd be crazy to think that there's any Christian anywhere who isn't going to need friends who help them recognize when the flesh has won a battle and needs to be beaten back. Part of the power of the flesh, part of the power of sin, the Bible tells us, is its power to deceive. That means we often get surprised by or trapped in or blinded by our sin, either because we can't see it at all or because we get really good at justifying what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, somebody's put it like this, that, that, that our self-perception, knowing that we're torn by the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, our self-perception as Christians always is going to be as accurate as a carnival mirror. And we'll see some things about ourselves, but other things that are completely distorted. So what do you do with that? Well, you're going to need Christian friends. That's what you do. You surround yourself with friends who are paying attention to your life. We know we're going to struggle with sin. We know we won't always see that that's happening. And so we know we need other Christians to tell us when they see what we don't or won't see. That's not about judgment. That's not about punishment. It's not about demolition of other people who deserve it. It's about restoration. And it's a basic responsibility that the New Testament puts in front of us as Christians over and over and over again. So, 
I want to stop before I get to the tools that we've been given for this work and just ask you a, a couple of diagnostic questions for you to think about and maybe to discuss with your friends. Is this kind of restoration work part of your friendships right now? Do, do you have friendships in your life where you are both seeking to restore that friend when you see something that needs to be acknowledged? And are you on the receiving end of that kind of care? Let's push this further. Are you giving this kind of care in any of your friendships? And if you're not, I think you should spend some time thinking about why not. I think one reason we don't give this kind of care when we don't is that sometimes it feels more loving not to. I mean, what we know is that we're all broken, that we're all sinful. We know we're all dependent on Jesus. That means it's not my job to look over anybody else's shoulder and try to expose everything in them that needs fixing. We also know we're called on to have grace towards one another, to be a soft landing place for other people's flaws, to not pounce every time something isn't up to code in the life of a friend. We know that. And so, and so that can sometimes build in this resistance to ever going there with someone when we see something that, that we think they should see but don't. There are good reasons sometimes that we hold back from this work. Good reasons we need to push past. But there are also bad reasons that we hold back from this work sometimes. Sometimes even these good justifications that I'll use to myself to keep myself from responsibility of flagging something for someone really are just masking the fact that we want to avoid giving this kind of care because it costs a lot more than looking the other way. It is actually a lot harder to do. I've often avoided it because it's easier for me not to take things personally than to do this work of restoration. I don't have a whole lot of trouble taking things well, charitably. It's just a personality thing. I'm not that easily offended. I have lots of other flaws. That's not one. Maybe that's maybe you're that way too. And I think I have often justified not doing anything, not getting in there and helping in the name of grace when really what it's covering over is just my desire to stay out of it and keep my hands clean. Could that be true for you too? If it is, then we both need to hear together what Paul is saying here, that the work of restoration in the life of a friend is basic Christianity. It's the job of all who are spiritual, and that's everybody who's with Jesus. Because Christian friends have baked into their friendships an acknowledgement that we hate sin more than we love being admired by one another. And we'd rather just have the help than have the worship. Are you giving this kind of care? If, if it's not part of your friendships, then like, spend some time thinking and praying and talking to other friends about why it's not. I wonder also, are you receiving this kind of care from anyone right now? If you're not, I wonder why not. I mean, one possibility is that you're flawless. I mean, no one's restoring beautiful, pristine, mint condition Corvettes or whatever from 1957. Do they even have Corvettes in 57? Probably. If that's you, and you're already like museum worthy, great. That's why no one's doing this work in your life. Chances are, if no one's doing this work in your life, it's, it's actually because they don't think you want them to. They may not feel invited to. And if that's the case, friend, then you're in danger. If your friends don't believe that you want them paying attention to your life and telling you what they see to challenge and encourage and restore you when you need it, 
they don't believe that's what you want from them, they probably won't give it to you. And you will be hurting without it. So here's one thing you might choose to do today. Just pick one friend and ask them, while it's still hypothetical, ask them if they want your help paying attention to their life to help them see what they might not see. And then ask them, this same friend, if they feel free, don't ask them to pay attention to your life. Ask them instead, do you feel free to tell me what you see in me? You might be interested to hear what they have to say. Now that's the work of restoration. I want to talk for a second about the tools that Paul puts in our hands here. Rather that Paul highlights, the gospel puts these tools into our hands. The tools to do this work of restoration. Paul mentions two things here that I'm thinking of as tools that you need. You should not do the work of restoration without these tools. Don't even think about it. You'll do more harm than good. These tools are so essential, without them you will destroy rather than restore. Without these tools, you try to pick up the the work of restoration... It'll be like using a saw when what you need is a hammer and nails. It just will accomplish other work and it will not be good for the person you want care for. Here are the two tools that you have to have for this job. Certainly need more, but these two are right on the forefront of Paul's mind. Number one, tool number one for this work of restoration is you're going to need a spirit of gentleness. Restore him, Paul says in verse one, in a spirit of gentleness. Does that one even really need to be justified? I think we all know what he's talking about, don't we? Have you ever been called out by somebody who isn't gentle? Someone who pounces fast and hard? Somebody who's harsh? Who sees and amplifies only the worst in you? Have you ever been on the receiving end of words that land like punishment, not like restoration? Somebody who swings a sledgehammer to swap a fly? Someone who's shocked? That's the main emotion you get from them when they see you as you are. It's like shock and bewilderment that you could be what you are. How different it is to be seen, even at your worst, by somebody who's gentle. A gentle spirit provides a soft landing for the sins of a friend. It handles the details of their life like a kind of fine china that it's not willing to risk. It knows their sins are likely a burden to them too. Even if they don't see it, that they likely suffer from them. That oftentimes their sins will be a burden they don't want to live with, but don't know how to unload. Gentleness, friends, is not softness. You've already covered that. Gentleness is the spirit in which someone who knows they have to take up this work should do the work. The work is ongoing. It's going to take courage. Gentleness is not softness. But gentleness knows that strength comes in many forms. And that demolition and restoration are two different kinds of work that take different tools. Don't try this work, friends, without the spirit of gentleness. The spirit modeled for us in the Savior who looked on sinners in need and loved them. You're going to need that tool. The other tool that you're going to need is a little bit of self-awareness. You're going to need to know your own sin. That's what Paul calls out in the second 
half of this first verse. He says, you who are spiritual, restore the one who's caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness. But then he also says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And I think I know why he, why he, why he goes there. If you're going to do the work of restoration, you need to know you do it as one who is also sinful. If we don't know ourselves to be sinners too, then we probably don't have any business helping our friends see and reject sin in their lives. And honestly, gentleness, the spirit of gentleness that's so important, it comes easier when you're aware of how hopeless you are on your own. When you know the power of sin in your own life. When you've known what it is to be blinded by it. To just not see things that are glaringly obvious to other people. When you know what it is to be hopelessly caught up in patterns of behavior that you can't shake. It makes you gentle towards others who are caught like you've been. When you know that. When you know that about yourself. When you know you've got to keep a close watch on yourself or you'll be tempted to right along with them. When you know that's who you are. Then you see yourself in the friends that you want to help. You don't see them as some sort of pitiful job you have to do. You see something of yourself in them and where they are. A fellow sinner depending on the mercy of Christ for everything. And that makes you an ally. Not a judge. Not an executioner. Not someone who stands aloof commenting on the lives of the common people as you live in your perfect holiness. An ally who's in this work with them. For them. The work of restoration Paul's talking about here is is not the pure helping the impure. It's not the strong helping the weak. It's not the holy helping the sinful. It is, as, as one book puts it, this just sinners in need of help, helping sinners in need of help, who help sinners in need of help, and so on down the line until it defines a culture. That's our target. That's Christian friendship. And I hope you can see, friends, that these tools that Paul is highlighting they only make sense in light of the gospel that he spent his whole letter unpacking for us. This work right here of restoring and being restored, it's an expression of the freedom of the gospel. The freedom to just get out of the game of hiding sin from one another. When Jesus bears it all for you anyway, why hide it? It's his now. He has become a curse for us. So that we who were under that curse might be freed from it. So I have nothing to hide from anyone. Nothing to prove to anyone. Because my justification is not based on how well you think of me. Or even how well God thinks of me. It is based on Jesus who is worthy. Completely worthy. And on Jesus who has taken my unworthiness and made it his own. So that it isn't mine anymore. And when you know that. When you're free. From, pretension, from pretending you're better than you are, well, then, you're, then you're ready to be restored and to restore. This work only makes sense in light of the gospel of justification by grace, not by works, through faith, not through effort. It only makes sense when a community is based on Jesus who is all in all. Because if justification comes through the law, if you've got to prove your way to your worthiness, then other people who are caught in sin are going to be either your competition, you're going to pat yourself on the back that you didn't fall where they did, or there'll be pitiable failures that you just kind of sigh over. But either way, your judgment of them is going to be harsh, and transparency is always going to be dangerous. But in a grace-filled culture, in a grace-filled culture that flows from the gospel and the freedom that Christ gives, 
We all know we have no hope but Jesus. That gives all of us no reason to hide and none of us any high ground from which to look down. It's just sinners depending on grace, helping each other forsake sin and pursue holiness. That's our, that's our work. That's the work Paul's putting in front of us. Then he shifts his gears. In verse 2, we get another kind of work that falls into this category of Christian friendship. Another thing for Christian friends do to each other. Another thing that's marked in us when the gospel makes us into a friend. And that's the work of burden sharing. Starts in verse 2, goes to verse 5. Burden sharing. There's a lot of overlap, actually, in this command and what it means. And in the command to restore those who've been caught in sin. But it does, I think it's a broader command. And it helps fill out the picture of what Christian friendship looks like. Um, let, let, me, let me do the same thing I've done under the first point. Let me talk a little bit about what this work is. So we understand what it means to share one another's burdens. And then talk about the tools that Paul puts in front of us that we'll need for that job. The commands, the work itself, I think is actually really straightforward. Paul says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. When your friend is carrying a burden, lift it with her. It isn't just her burden. It's yours too. I think what he's speaking into is a gap that all of us have known, either on the when we've been the burdened one or when we've been the one watching a burden carried. There's a gap that's almost always there. And for us as limited people, actually it will always be there to some extent. That gap is the the gap between the implications of this burden for the person who's carrying it, who's up under it, and the implications of this burden for the one who's on the outside watching, maybe weighing in. Maybe you mean well on the outside of this burden. And you offer your advice. Maybe you can tell someone what you, what you did when it was you or what you would do if you were them. Maybe you even feel some pity, but the burden stays theirs. They go home with it at night. Where this goes from here affects them in a different way than it affects you. I was struck by this, this gap even just this week reading, uh, reading this short story collection by John Updike. And there's this one story in there where he's, he was, he was, a character in it was reminiscing about this gap that parents and children often feel, a gap that causes, that makes it hard for ch kids to trust their parents when they tell them it's all going to be okay. He talked about it, uh, remembering back to when he was the kid on the side of the pool and his dad is in the water telling him to jump into him and, you know, drowning is an option for him where his dad's failure would just be like the embarrassment of having dropped the kid into the water. There's a huge gap. So it's easy for the dad to say, ah, come on, just trust me, jump in. The stakes are higher for that kid. Or when he remembers his daughter having trouble with her braces and one of the wires was kind of bothering the inside of her mouth. And so he's got the pliers out. He says, open up, open wide, and reaches into her mouth with the pliers. And for him, you know, a slip up is just, you know, kind of a faux pas. For her, it's, you know, some pliers going into her gums. There's a huge gap between the implications of the one receiving the care and the one giving it, so he describes it as the tone of voice of the father offering this care. The gaiety of his voice, he says, reveals a crucial space, a gap between the two situations. It would be his blunder, but her pain. Another's pain is not our own. In fact, the space of indifference is where we breathe. The space between their pain and ours as a caregiver is where you breathe. Paul is speaking here. He's telling us 
Uh, that's not a space in, a space in which to grieve. It's a space rich. That space is not something you should be comfortable with. Because when you're burdened, what you long for is not somebody to look on or to feel bad for you or to toss out helpful advice, but someone to get down with you, to get their shoulder up under your load and to lift it with their legs so that weight is on them. So that they share in the implications of how this goes from here. That's what we long for when we're burdened. And that's what Paul here calls Christian friends to do. Not to look on as well-wishers or cheerleaders, but to get under it and lift with their legs so that the burden isn't just theirs anymore. What tools do we need if we're going to do that work? I think Paul calls us to notice two different tools that I want to make sure you notice. I'm going to talk about here for a few minutes. The first tool, I think, is built into the second little phrase in verse 2. So he says, bear one another's burdens, and then he says, so fulfill the law of Christ. You see that? There's a lot of conversation about what this law means. But I think the tool that he's highlighting here, and I'm going to explain why I think this, is that you're going to need love. If you want to take up this work of burden sharing, you're going to need love. And that's what he has in mind when he says the law of Christ. Lots of conversation back and forth among experts about what this means. But I think the most compelling explanation is that, is that it's a reference to how Jesus summarized the law. When Jesus was asked about the law, he says it's summarized in the command to, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's something Paul's just quoted in this letter. Paul himself says the law is summarized in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then think about the, the law of love as one that's perfectly fulfilled by and expressed by Jesus in his own life. Jesus says in John 13, I think it's a great backdrop for what, he's, for what Paul says here. Jesus, talking to his friends the night before he's, he's killed, tells his friends that, that he's calling on them to love each other just as he has loved them. That greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, people will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So when you love like I've loved, people will be able to see the resemblance and they'll know you're mine. So I think what, what, what Paul has in mind here, even knowing that teaching and knowing what Christ has said about the law, is that the law of Christ, the thing that's on top of mind for Christ when he commands his followers is this command to love based on how he's loved them. This love has been Paul's theme throughout the letter in ways that I think just resonate beautifully with what he's saying here about burdens. Think back to chapter 3, one of the places where the gospel comes out clearly, most clearly in this letter. Listen to how he described what Christ does to save sinners. All who rely on the works of the law, he says, are under a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I think that resonates so well with this burden language, doesn't it? All who have not fulfilled the law perfectly are under a curse. It's a burden. It's on their shoulders. And it's like, like Bunyan pictures it in Pilgrim's Progress, this burden that this guy is just 
constantly carrying until he comes to the cross where it's let go and rolls down the hill. Christ, seeing us burdened under the curse of the law, becomes a curse himself. In other words, gets up under that curse and stands under it so that it's on his shoulders now and he stands more highly than we do. And now it's off of us. I love the, I think even there, perhaps Paul has in his mind Isaiah 53. I think the resonance of this passage, Isaiah 53, with the burden bearing that Paul's talking about here is even clearer. Listen to this. Surely he, speaking of the one to come, the Messiah, has borne our griefs, a burden on his shoulders, and carried our sorrows, a burden on his shoulders. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, on his shoulders, on his back, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and what happened? The Lord laid on him as a burden the iniquity of us all. In other words, through the gospel, we see Jesus bridging that gap that always exists at our best it will exist for us between the one who would give care and the one who's laboring under a burden there is a gap there that we will never fully bridge jesus bridged it all the way he left no space of indifference in which he could breathe he didn't just lob helpful comments from the sidelines but he poured himself out so that those who trust in him could be set free and now we're told, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What you're going to need if you want to bear people's burdens is the love of Jesus in your life. And I don't just mean as a model for you, though that's there too. I don't just mean a go and do likewise. I mean what you will need as your energy source for carrying on with the work of burden bearing is a love that you know you can depend on while others depend on you. Because here's the reality. It's not easy to carry somebody else's burdens. You're going to need the gospel every moment you do it. If you take up what's weighing somebody else down, the reality is, I mean, if you really take it, and it feels like yours, then you'll go to sleep at night, and you'll wake up in the morning, weighed down by a load you could have avoided if you chose to. It will feel like, and it will actually be true that, your life would be easier, would be more carefree, and at the moment at least, more enjoyable if you hadn't taken on yourself the burdens of your friends. If you hadn't just stayed out of what wasn't yours in the first place. And what you'll be tempted to when you feel that is regret over what you've gotten yourself into, or even self-pity, and eventually, friends, some sort of burnout, unless your love for others, the burdens you're carrying for them, flows out of his love for you, the burdens he's shouldered for you. Unless this love you show that leads you to bear burdens is a fruit born of his spirit inside, inside you, channeling into your life the same love that drove him to his grave under the curse of your sin. It helps to remember that 
It helps you remember how you've been loved and to remember that he'll give you everything you need too. You're going to need the tool that is his love in your life if you want to take up this work of burden sharing. And friends, it also helps to remember that if you think your life would be easier without friends weighing you down, um, as true as that might be for the moment, it's also because you need to zoom out a little bit because you're too preoccupied with the needs of the moment. And with the tilt of that scale maybe towards their needs right now, and need to zoom out a little bit over the scope of your own lifetime and know that one day you'll be the one with the burden you can't lift. It's only a matter of time. That's going to happen. You'll be the one with the burden you can't lift. And that's why another tool you're going to need if you want to take up the work of burden sharing is humility. You're going to need love, but you're also going to need humility. And I think that's the main point of verses 3 to 5. I think these verses give us the same basic warning from several different angles. And I think what they're trying to show us is that burden sharing is rooted in humility. I want to show you that that's what they're showing us. Burden sharing takes humility and then how to stay humble. Because I think verse 3 is showing us you got to be humble if you want to do this. And then verses 4 and 5 are showing us how to stay humble. All right? How to, why you need to be humble and then how to stay humble. So, so humility, this work of burden sharing it's rooted there it has to be i think that's why paul says begins verse three with a four usually he uses that word when he's about to explain the foundation of something he's just said so he's just said bear each other's burdens and now that key word is showing us oh he's going to show us why we should bear each other's burdens on the surface it's not an explanation i would have been looking for if anyone thinks he's something paul says when he's nothing he deceives himself why does that explain the need for me to bear somebody's burdens I think what he's saying is that we should bear each other's burdens because we should know better than to trust ourselves. We should know, in other words, that we're going to need this kind of help too, eventually. If you think that you're something, and that's why you're not burdened, when you're nothing, then you're deceiving yourself, and you're going to need this sort of agreement at the top that when somebody has a burden, it's all of our burden to carry. That's going to be something you need in your life at some point. If you don't know this, if you think you're above burdens, if you think that you're the kind of person who helps those who don't have based on what you do have, well, not only will you be setting yourself up for a life where you won't have the care you need in time, you also won't really be able to help people who need your help now. Because the reality is nobody wants to be your burden. Nobody wants to be that person in a relationship with you. And if they think you think that's who they are to you, they won't take it from you. They won't get what they need from you. You're going to have a hard time sharing past the point where it puffs up your self-esteem, too. If you come in as the person with strength to help the person with weakness, that may drive you to that point, but it won't sustain you. Eventually, the, the cost-benefit analysis is just going to tilt towards cost, and you'll be out. Because though you might get a little bit of boost to your sense of yourself, from the fact that you've played the role of Jesus in this person's life. Eventually, you just won't be able to be Jesus for them, and it will crush you. The only way to make this work over time is to be done with conceit, which can't coexist with this kind of burden sharing, and know that you're going to need the help as much as anybody else. So, so, so you may as well give it while you can, 
and then take it when you have to. It also helps to know, friends, that whatever you have was given to you. I think that's also baked in here for verse 3. If you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. If you think whatever you have wasn't given to you by God's hand, by his grace, then you're deceived. And if it really ultimately belongs to him anyway, if anything that you have to offer is his, then who are you really to hold it back from somebody who needs it? You can't. That would just be unjust. That would be self-deception. That's what that would be. If you're going to do the work of burden sharing, in other words, it's got to be rooted in humility. And I think that raises the last question. How do you cultivate humility like this? And I think that's what Paul's doing in verses 4 and 5. So verse 3 just ties burden sharing to humility and says, don't do it if you're not humble. won't work. won't be good for you or for them. But how do you get humble? Because none of us come that way, right? I mean, there's a lot of us, that, a, lot of, a lot in us that resists humility. And it's a daily battle to push back against the pride that always dwells within. So how can we? I think that's what he's getting at in verses 4 and 5, even though I'm going to be honest and say I think it's not crystal clear on the surface how he's getting there. Those, to me, are the, the two verses that are hardest to understand, at least on a surface reading in what we've considered this morning. Uh, uh, partly because it seems like they contradict what he's already said. Have you noticed in verse 5 he says, each will have to bear his own load? And he's still in this section where he's trying to explain why we ought to bear each other's burdens. If you, if you track the way his thought plays out here, what he says is, bear one another's burdens because each will have to bear his own load. How does he get there? I think it helps to know that, that what he's doing in verse 5 is very different kind of work from what he does in verse 2. In verse 2, the word for load or is different from the word for, or word for burden is different from the word for load in verse 5. Even more important than that, the context is different. So in ver- up in verse 2, he's talking about hard things in life that weigh you down. It might be sin struggles. It might be being trapped in sin like verse 1 has in mind. It might just be that you're living in a world that's broken. So you're grieving. You're losing things constantly. You're weighed down because your, your resources are not up to the things asked of you. It could, be, it could be any number of things in verse 2. In verse 5, what he has in mind is the sense that, as, as the whole Bible teaches, God assigns certain things to certain people. God gives responsibilities to us. We are agents under him who are accountable to him. Partly because he's made us in his image, and partly because in his providence he has given to each one different things, different resources and different responsibilities. The, the parable of Jesus of the talents is, is, I think, a really important background. I won't take time to read it, but a background to what Paul has in mind here. This load that each one has to bear is pointing to the fact that, that each person is accountable to God as an individual with a life that is theirs and no one else's. And that God doesn't grade our lives on a curve. God doesn't grade our lives on a curve. Each one of us will stand before him and give an account for what he gave us, for what he called us to as individuals. I think it helps to see this in light of the bigger context of, of this passage. Paul, in verse 26 of chapter 5, right before he gets to our section for today, calls them out for conceit that leads them to provoke and envy one another. 
And then in verse 4, he's talking about the importance of testing your own work so that your reason to boast will be in yourself alone and not in your neighbor. I think he's back to talking about envy and conceit here. He's talking about our tendency to measure how well we're doing by how we stack up against the people around us. And he's talking about the tendency we have to look for flaws in them so we feel better about the flaws in us or even better about the things in us that we love. Our tendency is not to consider what God sees, in other words, but to think about what others see or what we see in others. And when that's our standard for how well we're doing, humility is going to be real difficult to keep. Because we can always find material in our friends' lives that make us feel better about ourselves, can't we? I mean, it's, it's plenty to work with there. We're simultaneously supplying them with all the material they need for the same thing in their own lives. So as long as we're looking around at each other for envy or for conceit to be puffed up or to be, or, or to be shamed, as, as long as other people are our comparison, we will not have the humility that we need to bear their burdens with them. In fact, their burdens will then just add to this gristmill of self-love in us because we'll look at them burdened as they are and think, oh, that's too bad for them, isn't it? I can't imagine having to carry that. If only they had done this, I did. They wouldn't be there where they are. Look at what their actions have brought upon them. That's, that's going to be our posture towards people and their burdens. We'll have a lot of vested interest in thinking of their burdens that way. It'll be how we know who we are and take pride in what, God, in, in what we are doing with our lives. But if you want to have the humility that you're going to need to bear somebody else's burden, you're going to need to fight that in yourself. And the best way to fight that in yourself is to remember that what matters is what God sees and that your load is yours and that nothing about how other people carry their loads affects how you carry yours before God's eyes. And that, friends, the sober knowledge that everything we do and think and feel is seen by him in his perfect holiness and will be revealed before him and all the world on the day of judgment will drive us back again into the arms of Jesus who stands for us as our only hope, whose cross is our only boast and who is just as available to our burdened friends as he is available to us. So if consciousness of who we are in God's eyes drives us to Jesus with a humility that's done trying to justify our lives. Jesus can then drive us back to our friends in their burdens so that we take on what is theirs as our own. It's all a tapestry, isn't it? It's all woven together. This is the kind of friend that the gospel creates and only the gospel can create it. So we want to pray now that God will help us by his spirit bear this fruit in our lives with one another so that all of us are able to grow up into the image of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for speaking to us, not just a record of what you've done for us that gives us hope and purpose, but also words that tell us how to live in ways that honor you and help one another. Thank you for the good commands that you've given us in your word this morning. And now we want you to know that as much as we can see, as far as we know our own selves, we know that we have no hope apart from you for taking up these commands. We pray that your spirit would bear fruit in our lives so that we love one another in this way. We pray that you would protect us from the pride and conceit 
that keeps us hiding in our sin or that drives us towards other people's sin in ways that are destructive rather than restorative. And we pray that you would give us a culture where people who enter into it see that there's something unusually beautiful about friends who have nothing to hide and no reason to hold back from giving each other care. We pray that you would do this work and get glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.